As commented on by Drs. Vredenberg and Friedman, one of the most interesting innovations in chemotherapy delivery is the so-called gliadol wafer, and I met with Dr. Jeffrey Razor for his take on this and other clinical and research issues in malignant glioma. Dr. Razor began our conversation by commenting on the gliadol wafer. Prior to gliadol, one of the main drugs that people used to use was either BCNU or CCNU, but they had a lot of systemic toxicities. So one approach was developed was if you can give this drug locally and get as good activity without getting the systemic toxicities, mostly bone marrow suppression and small incidence of pulmonary toxicity. A couple studies were done initially in recurrent tumors, then in upfront tumors, which showed that there is some benefit, hence that led to the drugs getting FDA approval. That being said, I'm not sure that there's a lot of general use of the drug, at least in academic centers. I think most of it occurs probably in maybe the community centers, smaller places like that. The academic centers may be driven in part by the number of protocols and clinical trials that they do. Using the wafers often excludes patients from getting onto studies. So that was really the first thing that was approved. Then temozolomide, which was an older drug that came back off the shelf, was used in some earlier phase one studies. And interestingly, they included gliomas, which is not typically occurs in the U.S., but it was done in England. Saw some patients that had activity in gliomas melanoma, and that's really where the trajectory of the drug went to. They did two studies in recurrent gliomas, GBM study, which was randomized, and an open-label phase two study in anaplastic gliomas. The drug didn't get approved in the U.S. for recurrent glioblastomas because of the benchmark numbers they used, but they get approved for recurrent anaplastic gliomas. In Europe, it got approval for both. Because there was some data with its use as a radiation sensitizer, there was a small study done in Europe where they used it with radiation and then followed it with six months of Temidar. That led to a large randomized trial comparing it to radiation, and that led to sort of the approval for initial therapy at that point, where you can take patients from once diagnosed with glioblastomas, give them radiation therapy with temozolomide, and then six months of maintenance temozolomide based on the study. Is that usually pretty straightforward, or are there problems and challenges in giving patients that therapy? You know, I think there's a difference of the way these diseases are approached. I think in the U.S., we tend to be a little bit more aggressive than in Europe and, say, Canada. So although the study uses six months as its treatment paradigm, most people in the United States probably treat anywhere from 12 to 24 months, especially if patients are doing well. So that's one slight difference is I don't think a lot of us follow the study and just say, okay, you get six months and you stop. Most of us probably treat 12 months as a minimum for a glioblastoma, some up to 24 months, and there's patients who've been on it even longer because they don't want to stop the drug when they've been doing so well. What's it like to carry a patient on that therapy for 12 or 24 months? By and large, most patients tolerate it pretty well. The things that you tend to see is a little bit of some myelosuppression over time. For reasons that aren't quite clear, women and elderly patients seem to have much more myelosuppressant issues that you don't see with the male patients. Somebody threw out an idea once that maybe they just have higher levels of AGT in their blood or something like that that's leading to higher systemic toxicities. But patients I see that I have to really dose adjust or stop therapy earlier sometimes tend to be the female patients and the elderly patients, but elderly in general have a harder time tolerating the drugs. Can you talk a little bit about the research that led to this current standard and how much of an impact it has on the patient's survival and progression-free survival? Roger Stoop, who did the initial small study where they used radiation with Temidar, showed that there was 17-month overall survival, which compared to about the 12-month survival we typically saw looked pretty good. 
the issue in that study was that if you were over 50, your survival was about 12 months. If you were under 50, it was 17 months. And so the first question was, was this an age issue? Because we know that age is an important prognostic factor in these patients. When they did the randomized study, and I can't say that I personally think it was the best design study, but I think it was designed based on the practices of Europe and Canada, the design of radiation and temozolomide followed by temozolomide compared to radiation alone was done. Now, we don't know that using radiation and then temodar might not be as good, but certainly if the study was designed that way, we would know that the only difference between the two groups was actually the chemoradiation, and then we would really know whether it's that piece that's the most important. I think right now we have this standard, but we don't really know, is it the chemoradiation, is it the post-radiation and chemo, or is it the whole combination? But we do know that their survivals are about two and a half months better if you get the chemoradiation and then the six months of temozolomide. Importantly, when you look at the number of patients that are out at two years, is almost threefold greater, we're about 9% versus 27%. So it seems that, you know, at least there's more patients living longer. As part of this study, they looked at something called MGMT. And if the gene is on or off, that tends to predict how well people do. And if your gene is turned off or methylated, then your two-year survival jumps for those patients to about 49%. Any speculations about why? Well, we know that the gene itself creates an enzyme, AGT. AGT, basically, if you take alkylators like temozolomide or BCNU or other ones and you give it to patients, it damages them at their O6 position and some N7. The drug goes in there and basically takes out that damage to one of the pathways. It removes the damaged DNA and basically fixes everything that you're trying to do. Hence, if you've got the gene activated, you're more likely to correct the chemo damage and less likely to respond to chemotherapy. Let's talk a little bit about some of the targeted approaches to the therapy of malignant gliomas that have been evolving over the last few years and the pathways that are being attacked. Can you kind of put that in perspective? So I think not too dissimilar to most of oncology. There's a lot of work looking at either cell surface receptors signals transduction receptors, aspects of DNA transcription and things like that that have moved a little bit away from traditional chemotherapy to more sort of biologic or targeted specific therapies, which tend to be less toxic, but certainly have their own set of issues as I tell patients there's no free ride with any kind of drug we have to give you. In neuro-oncology, a lot of what derives actually gets there a little bit later than other solid tumors in part probably because the numbers aren't as high and issues around that. There's a lot more lung cancer than there are glioblastomas running around the United States. But there's been several studies in numerous that have looked at targeting individual targets. To date, not any one of them has been particularly effective. Preclinically, one sees if you start hitting multiple targets, you actually seem to do better in terms of cell kill or tumor burden reduction. There's been a couple studies in patients with brain tumors using these combination agents, but they themselves haven't really been any more effective than using a single agent at this point. We are learning that maybe certain molecular signatures that patients have may predispose to better responses to therapy. An example is they you know, looked at people who responded to a drug called Tarceva, which is an EGFR inhibitor. It turns out, at least from a retrospective study done through UCLA, that 
patients who had the EGFRV3 mutation and had the presence of P10 seemed to respond the best to that drug. Unfortunately, when they looked at that subpopulation in a study out of Europe, none of them seemed to respond. So obviously with most things, it's a little bit more complex than we think it is at times. But it may be that trying to use this sort of designer approach may be a sort of a rational way to do things. I think in the future, I'm not sure we quite understand it enough yet, but it's a pathway. But I think people are moving to using biologic agents with chemotherapy or multiple biologic agents together. What do we know about angiogenesis and malignant gliomas and anti-angiogenic strategies? It's interesting because it's probably the hottest area right now in malignant gliomas for research of using different anti-angiogenics, but it's sort of a latecomer to these kind of treatments. Early on in the Avastin studies, there was a couple of lung cancer patients that asymptomatic brain lesions that ended up having intracranial hemorrhages. Because of that, they put the quote-unquote fear of God into most of the companies and trying to use these agents because they figured the risk of intracranial hemorrhages was going to outweigh any risk or any benefit the patients may derive. We know that these are highly vascular tumors, and if you do things like MR perfusion, you get very high relative cerebral blood volume compared to normal tissue. So what started as somebody walking into somebody's office in Texas and saying, I want Avastin and CPT-11 for my significant other because it works in colon cancer, a lot of blood vessels, same in brain tumors, led to one of the clinicians out there to treat a bunch of patients, showed that it work. That sort of catapulted into Duke University as their brain tumor center doing a follow-up study with that combination, then to a Genentech study. And now there's several other drugs of that subclass. Some are small molecules, some are antibodies that are all under investigation, looking at that as a way of treating tumors. And it seems to make sense. And importantly, you may not have to actually get into the tumor because if you're just trying to shut down the vasculature, that may be sort of like an extracranial type of scenario. And importantly, we're not actually seeing the hemorrhagic rates that people were worried about. I think there's maybe three cases reported from studies. Unfortunately, when initial studies come out, a lot of people in the community start using it. So if there are intracranial hemorrhage rates out there that aren't being reported, we don't know about them. But at least from published data, there's only a handful of patients who've had intracranial hemorrhages and some of them in the setting of thrombocytopenia. So it's hard to know which came first. Can you talk about the paper you presented at the last ASCO meeting looking at a series of patients who received bevacizumab and how what you saw compared to what's been seen in other studies? We are soon to complete a study. The CPT-11 agent used in combination with Avastin, in most people's minds at this point, doesn't seem to do very much, maybe a 5 to 8% response rate at best, although there are some centers that seem to really like using it. So when I put the study together, I didn't think the drug really added much. I sort of used the equation of one plus zero still makes one, so why give somebody toxicity? So we've treated about 44 patients now. I haven't looked at the most recent data, but we did have some patients who had very durable responses, had a couple who were over a year before there was any recurrence, and we had some who didn't have any evidence of activity. And then we had some in the middle who went for six, eight months of you know tumor stabilizational response before they progress. Now, I will say for me, you know, some patients there is this pattern of what people dub sort of a gliomatosis type of progression, where their enhancement is diminished because Avastin is a very good anti-edema agent and repairs the blood-brain barrier. 
So oftentimes the enhancement gets better, but then you see this sort of progressive infiltration of brain that occurs. So some people, when they started showing that, with especially in the setting of a clinical decline, took them off study. But at least the numbers I had, the progression-free survival, I think at that point was maybe about 25% or so, which was better than our historical controls, but certainly not as good as what was predicted from some of the other studies, from where they use combination with CPT-11. If you look at the study through Genentech, where they had one arm that got a vast and one that got a vast in CPT-11, response rates were about 10 to 15% difference, but a little bit higher in the group who got the combination therapy, as well as time to progression, and overall survival was a little bit longer by about four weeks. Where are we in terms of predictors of response to bevacizumab? That we don't know. As part of my study, I'm trying to do all these clinical correlations and collect all the tissue and look and see, is there a component of how much VEGF you have in your tumor versus how much you don't have? We're also looking at some of the perfusion data as everybody gets a baseline MR perfusion. Some studies have shown that your perfusion can change within hours to a day of getting a drug, but at least in our study, we're looking at it every six weeks looking at their changes in perfusion volume, looking at what is their baseline perfusion number. If it's very, very high or low, does that predict how well somebody might do? So maybe if it's low, you don't have a lot of VEGF activity going on. Maybe that will predict who doesn't respond as well. I can't comment on that because it's sort of being, you know, we're not done yet and we're sort of still collecting everything. But there's sort of no prognostic markers yet that will predict who's going to do well and who's not. Any patients on that study or other patients that you've taken care of who received bevacizumab who had particularly dramatic or impressive clinical responses that you might want to comment on? The patients who I had that did the best didn't really have a huge burden of disease where they were so clinically symptomatic. I had one patient who had about almost a partial response of 50% for 14 months on drug. Another was about a year who had almost a complete response, but they didn't really have much symptomatology. The other ones who were on for that sort of intermediate period of time, scans got better and they clinically improved at the same time. The real hallmark is if they're on steroids and you can wean them off their steroids, it's sort of, to me, a true sign they're actually at least doing something. Although some people say Avastin is just a very expensive steroid, but at least you're able to get them off their steroids. And so some of the intermediate patients clinically did better. Yeah, you were mentioning that bevacizumab has an anti-edema effect you know what the exact mechanism might be, and what's the magnitude, for example, compared to steroids? I'm not sure it's ever been compared, and I don't know that I necessarily know the mechanism, but there was another name for VEGF many years ago, which I've heard at a talk and I'm blanking on. But it does sort of in some ways help reconstitute the blood-brain barrier, so a lot of the enhancement goes down, and maybe that's just because you're shutting off blood supply. You need blood flow to get contrast agent to the tumor, you need an impaired blood-brain barrier for the dye to leak out. We know that steroids actually will reconstitute the blood-brain barrier, make MRIs look better. So it's probably a mechanism similar to that, but I'm not sure I can give you the exact mechanism. Do you think right now that bevacizumab has a role in the non-protocol management of patients with malignant glioma, assuming it can be paid for and reimbursed, just sort of putting that aside just clinically? Sure. I mean, even though I have a study with some patients, they want to get chemo in addition to it. And so I will try to get it through their insurance company, and, and we've been relatively successful in doing that to get the drug in most patients, not 100%, maybe 75%. So I think it still has a role. Certainly if you look at the early data from the Genentech study, which 
I put more faith in than sort of not that the Duke study is flawed, but you know it's known that single center studies aren't really they're a little bit homogeneous or not heterogeneous when you get multiple centers involved. But you know survivals were about you know nine to ten months, which is pretty decent. So I certainly think there's a role. Whether one needs to use chemotherapy, I don't know. Whether one needs CPT11 versus carboplatinum versus BCNU or any of those drugs, they've all been used with Avastin. It's not clear that any one is better than another. I know that there's patients out there who've been on Avastin with CPT11. They will progress, and then they go on to keep the Avastin but switch to a different chemo, which doesn't seem to make a whole lot of difference. One thing that's been noted by others and occasionally in some of my patients is that when they do get this gliomatosis progression and they get worse is they don't seem to salvage very well at that point. But I think probably Avastin's going to move into probably second-line treatment for patients in the near future, and I suspect they're going to try to get accelerated FDA approval. What about the issue of bevacizumab in a non-protocol setting in earlier stage disease? I've done it in a couple patients. There's still some risks with the drug, and at least you're always guaranteed or when patients are signing consent forms that they read through everything. I have some patients who I'm using in one patient who's got a lot of radiation inflammation going on. There's other people who have used it, or there's, I think, one study using it for radiation necrosis. So it may have some other usefulness as opposed to just treating tumors itself. What about the issue of hemorrhage? How do you, at this point, you mentioned there were a couple cases in lung cancer. How do you put it all together, and where do you think things are going to be heading in general in terms of that issue with CNS hemorrhage and bevacizumab? I don't think it's going to be a huge issue with bevacizumab or any other small molecule that targets VEGF because we're just not seeing it. I mean, I've had one patient who had about a one-centimeter hemorrhage when during a time when her blood pressure was not so well-controlled. So whether it was a blood pressure issue or the drug, it's not clear. But really not seeing a whole lot of it. I don't think it's as big of a worry as people thought. There are some studies out there in lung cancer using drugs like Sutent, which has VEGF activity or anti-VEGF activity that to my knowledge today, it's not showing any sort of increased hemorrhage rate. Certainly, intracranial hemorrhages into tumors do occur spontaneously. They happen in glioblastomas. They can happen in several tumor types of solid tumors. So I don't think that it's really as much of a worry as everybody thought it was at first. How do you find patients tolerating single-agent bevacizumab in your study and also other reports, including quality of life? Well tolerated. I mean, if you don't have any of the major side effects which is gastrointestinal perforation, strokes, bleeds, clotting, hypertension with or without post-irreversible leukoencephalopathy. If you don't get any of those things, most of them handle it fairly well. You know, the problem with things that work well in patients is they're sort of, you don't know if and when you should ever stop a drug. And so if you're on, depending on the schedule you're on, if you're on every two-week schedule with or without chemo, you're now committed to that potentially for life if it's working. And that in itself over time may get a little difficult for patients. If they're not doing well, they don't really think about it at that point in time and certainly do whatever you have to do. In my study, it's every three weeks, so it's a bit more manageable. Certainly if there's oral medications that turn out to be effective or as effective as Avastin is, certainly that would make patients' lives a lot easier because you can take it home and hopefully the tumor would be sort of like a chronic illness. What are some of the other targeted agents that have been tested in gliomas that look promising? Initially, when Gleevec came out, it was going to fix pretty much all the malignancies out there. And at the end of the day, it was pretty much good for whatever it was approved for, which is just tumors and CML. 
there was some data that combining with hydroxyurea might have made it better. It's probably now that it's been done in a multicenter study, probably won't turn out to be that way, although the final data is not out yet. People have looked at EGFR inhibitors, Aresa, Tarceva. Again, there's no great evidence of activity with those drugs. People are looking at mTOR inhibitors now, CCI779, which is now proof for renal cell cancer. As a single agent, didn't do very much in malignant gliomas. HDAC inhibitors are being used. There's some evidence that there's some activity using HDAC inhibitors. How about anti-VEGF TKIs, for example, AZ2171 or resentin? Right. So, I mean, that's a study that's about to launch. They had some good evidence of activity through a study done at Mass General Hospital. So when I refer to some of the small molecules, that's certainly one of the ones that may have activity. They just completed their phase one toxicity, but that'll open up into a randomized study pretty soon, which we'll be participating in. What's been seen with the agent up to this point? They saw actually relatively dramatic drops in perfusion values and blood flow with two tumors within like 24 hours. It was a small number of patients, but enough of a signal for them to take it into an advanced stage study. Where do you see the field heading over the next three to five years? How do you think we're going to be taking care of patients at that point? A little hard question to answer. Certainly there's a lot of activity prior to, I'd say, the late 90s. Most clinical trials were done through cooperative groups, not through industry. In the last eight years, the number of industry-sponsored clinical trials within neuro-oncology is just logarithmic in the number that are going on. I think that in itself says a lot that we should hopefully be able to find some better treatments. I'm not sure we're going to necessarily be curing that many people. That would be nice, but I think we might be able to get a better handle on controlling tumors and giving people longer survivals for a longer period of time with a better quality of life. I think certainly if we start understanding the molecular signatures and we can do this designer therapy that if you've got EGFR V3 and P10 with high levels of mTOR, you should get this drug. And if you have high levels of X or Y, then you should get this drug. I think if we start selecting a specific populations best likely to respond, we may actually do better for a subset of patients. Anything new in terms of local therapy with surgery and radiation therapy and also imaging? I mean, I think surgery's got as probably as refined as it's going to get at this point. Unfortunately, like in colon cancer, it's easy to resect something in the middle of a colon and then put the ends back together if you can with nice clean margins. We're very limited in the brain by our ability to resect because we start leaving patients neurologically handicapped or devastated depending on the location of their tumor. And often, you know, that has a drastic impact on their quality of life. The limitations of Local therapies is somewhat analogous to using radiosurgery for these tumors is they're not local tumors, they're diffuse. You have to get something that's going to get through the brain. There's a great picture of somebody with a brain tumor in 1940 that Dandy operated on and you know did a hemispherectomy and the patient still died of their tumor. So the problem is not local, it's diffuse. So you, a local therapy may not work unless it's got the ability to diffuse through brain parenchyma, which was what conduction-enhanced delivery was supposed to do and whether we just haven't optimized that as a modality to get drug through the brain better or we just don't have the right drug remains to be seen. Imaging, we've got strong magnets. Not all of them are clinically approved. Anything beyond three is not a clinically proven magnet. It is helpful for patients. I'm not sure that it's anything yet that will tell us how to treat patients any better. Certainly it's helpful when trying to figure certain things out like post-radiation changes versus recurrent tumor. You can get a lot of useful information and 
surrogate imaging in those scenarios. Again, radiation, I think, is not going to evolve a whole lot more. You can do external beams, what most people do. There's something called gliocyte, which is liquid radiation that goes into a catheter that gets put into a tumor cavity. That's, to me, the equivalent of doing radiosurgery. Again, none of which has really increased survival all that much. But that doesn't mean something won't come down the line that may be more effective. Any patients that you've taken care of in your practice that you could sort of present to me or tell me about without using identifying information that you think would be helpful in terms of making teaching points about some of the things that we've talked about today? Yeah, I mean, I've got one patient who's a good example of where you need to kind of think about what's going on with patients. So, you know, she's 55 or so, a woman with a left frontal glioblastoma. She actually was one one of my clinical trials where we were using arsenic trioxide with radiation and temidar followed by temidar. And one of her post-radiation scans had a large amount of contrast enhancement. But the MR perfusion was very low cerebral blood volume, so it was more suspicious of radiation changes. Put her on steroids, and the next scan, it got much better. We dropped steroids, and then it got worse again. Again, the MR perfusion was really consistent, not with tumor. Put her back on steroids, it got better. And this went on actually a couple times. But, you know, one of the things that's actually part of the Canadian guidelines is that people with changes post-MRI scan, it's often sort of now dubbed pseudoprogression, although it's probably been a known entity before that, but now has a name. Some of these people aren't tumor progressors, and they've done a couple studies of actually taking these people to the operating room when they've had these, and about a third of patients who get operated on actually have radiation changes and not tumor. So one shouldn't necessarily jump the boat on the therapy just because the MRI looks worse. One needs to ride it out, and sometimes surrogate imaging can help you feel more comfortable in the decisions that you're making. When you say radiation changes, is this inflammation or what exactly going on? You know, it's somewhere between inflammation and it's probably more like an inflammatory reaction than actually like radiation necrosis because it's a bit early for radiation necrosis to occur because it tends to occur within several weeks of the completion of radiation to a couple months. So you might get a thick rind of contrast enhancement put them on steroids, and it just basically melts away. And that's what happened with this woman? Yeah. Her last scan was, I think, two weeks ago, and it looked much better again. But, you know, if you didn't think about it, you would have taken her first scan, said she was progressing, potentially operated on her again, and the patient would have not needed surgery. And I've seen numerous cases where that's happened, where they have all this enhancement, and the surrogate imaging tells us it's probably not tumor. And in those patients, you don't want to stop an effective therapy because it's actually doing something. You need to just treat the inflammation effectively with steroids. And I have one patient I'm actually using a Vastin on because he's gotten very cushionoid on it, and we actually operated on him once because he had a lesion that was growing despite being on steroids, and it was all basically radiation changes. There was no active tumor there. So what's happened to that patient with the Avastin? I haven't scanned him yet, but clinically he's actually doing better. He's working a couple hours a day. He's able to wean down off of his steroids. He was on 12 milligrams a day. I think we just dropped him to, I think, 5 milligrams last Friday. So it seems to be doing something clinically. I haven't seen his imaging yet, but his tumor is very intimate with his speech area. So I would suspect if he was getting worse as I was coming off the steroids, he would probably be getting worse. I think it's an exciting time in neuro-oncology for patients with primary brain tumors. Certainly we're not doing as well as one would like, but I think things are sort of wide open and the things that are going to occur, I think, in the next three to five years. We just need to learn 
how to use our drugs a little bit better, and hopefully we'll get better results.